Welcome to episode 485 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, the last episode of 2023. We are lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and we're going to be expressing views not shared by our institutions, our clients, our friends, our family, not even our pets. Joining me for the news roundup, Megan Stiefel, who is Chief Strategy Officer for the Institute for Security and Technology and was formerly with the National Security Division at the Justice Department. David Chris, founder of Culper Partners, also an alumnus of the National Security Division, which he used to run. Gus Hurwitz, who is at the University of Penn, a senior fellow and academic director, and also is director of law and economics programs at the International Center for Law and Economics. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host and chief provocateur for today. We have a lot of stories to cover. Uh, I think basically everybody realized when they came back from Thanksgiving that they had a hell of a lot of policy to make between now and the uh, end of the year, and they've started dumping it everywhere. Uh, Megan, why don't we talk about AI stories? Because there were two or three that I thought were kind of fun, some of them with policy implications, some of them just with really interesting tech implications. Thanks, Stuart, for having me. Yes, we're going to talk several fun things about AI, and I know you're going to jump in very early on this first one which is to say the the entropic story about asking really, really nicely if it will really, really please not discriminate. So Anthropic last week, I guess, I think it was last week, self-published a paper acknowledging that if if it gave the, the model specific instructions, asking it to nicely please, please not discriminate uh, or someone will sue us, it actually worked. Uh, of course, this is a self-published paper. So what do we think about the, the kind of, we have to take it with a grain of salt. But they, among other things, started adding additional reallys before in the prompt. <laughs> yes. Sometimes all caps, I think they use. <laughs> yes. To ask it to not discriminate on things like not allowing demographic characteristics to influence the the response to the prompt. And they found that it, it, it worked. But then they go on, at least the story in TechCrunch goes on to acknowledge that, that Anthropic says we shouldn't be delegating responsibility. Uh, we need to keep the human in the loop. Uh, we wouldn't want the LLMs to be making decisions about whether someone has sufficient credit to receive a loan and other types of sensitive decision-making processes. Don't you think that was like saying, so AI is really only good as a toy? It can't yes. actually be used for, for, for yeah. things that matter? Yeah. Did, were the, was the marketing department not involved in this decision-making process <laughs> to publish this paper? I mean, the best part, though, I think of the article, and so I encourage everyone to go check it out, is there is a funny picture at the end. So Zoolander reigns and... Maybe maybe by next year at this time we'll have some better some some better news on the and we'll talk about some of the next developments, which is to say you can I'll jump ahead to two of them. Oh actually before you do that, I always read these stories to see what they think is discrimination because you know often uh, it is something where you would say, well, really that's discrimination. But in this case, what they what they said was whenever we asked for hiring decisions, it turned out that the AI was biased against white males and maybe against old people. And when we asked it, really, please don't discriminate, it reduced but didn't eliminate that bias, which I thought was very interesting. They, they don't 
play that up in the discussion. It sounds like, oh, AI has another discrimination problem, and maybe it does, but it is not the discrimination problem that the popular press has been insisting is built into AI. And so I was surprised that that was the original problem, and I was surprised how much they could actually milk out of it. They compared the original to the really, really please, please version of discrimination. And it produced discrimination by what looks like something, you know, 40, 50 percent. Didn't completely eliminate it, but dramatically knocked it down. So this is a real phenomenon, I think. Yes, we'll see. I mean, hopefully we'll get um, additional insights onto other bots' ability to to respond to these types of prompts. Okay. Um, will others be as responsive? So. Moving on, right? Now we have Google updating Bard with Gemini. And I think this story together with the next one that I think you're going to include in the summary is basically to say Google has been trying to, to nip at the heels of OpenAI and ChatGPT for the past, well, basically since ChatGPT came out earlier this year. And so last week, they Google launched um, Gemini. And you know, just to, to note that there are basically kind of three options within Gemini that Google is offering to a limited set of users. And unfortunately, not everyone is, is as plus with Gemini, which is the second piece of the two articles, as Google itself is. It is, like some of its competitors, a multimodal system, which is to say that it was trained on images and sound. But it's still like like its peers, that it, it can also make mistakes. It can hallucinate, you know, which is to say that it can make stuff up. So again, Stuart, I'm, I'm noticing this trend of like, hmm, curious choices to go to market with these developments when you don't exactly have the, you know, the champion product. Yeah, I'm with you. But I, I guess the answer is it's not possible right now on the state of the art for these AI engines to be right. I mean, the, the mistakes that Gemini was accused of making in the Twitter reviews was things like who just won the best uh, yeah. actor Oscar or give me a, a word in French with six letters and it gave them a word in French with five. And then it was given another chance and it gave them a word with seven. When it was asked to code a tic-tac-toe game, it took longer at least than ChatGPT. So who knows? It does suggest that this is a little like evaluating people's ideas of what is a good cryptography uh, algorithm. Really, all you can do is keep poking at it to see how many flaws it has. You can't say for sure, I know this is good. It's, you, you've got to put it out there and let people find what's wrong with it. Which I would think would give us, should give us all significant pause. But of course, that doesn't make money in the Valley or elsewhere. So here we are again. Yeah. I think I've seen this movie before. You know, I, I think if you have, it's sort of like reading Wikipedia. If you already know, kind of know the answer, but you have forgotten the details and then you read Wikipedia and say, oh yeah, that's it. Oh yeah, that. Okay. I got it now. There's a little of that with some of these AI engines that if you ask it for help and then it looks right afterwards, well, there's a decent chance it is right. Yes, but I think, you know, probably the, the three of us on this call, plus many in the audience, are a bit more discerning than the average American who is going to think that whatever it spits out is... Speak for yourself, Megan. 
well, I'm not speaking for myself because I don't <laughs> seem, I don't consider myself as discerning as the three of you. But anyways, well, and this takes us to the next point, right, story, uh, Stuart, which is to say that there's an article in Scientific American that jailbroken chatbots can jailbreak other chatbots. I love this. I do love this. I just, I envision the two robots getting together. The robot revolt. Exactly. Say, can you jailbreak me? Sure. You know? <laughs> yes. You ask really, really nicely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. It's a, this article, among the interesting things that, that come out here is that chatbots automated attack techniques proved to be successful almost 50% of the time against GPT-4, which is one of the largest LLMs that powers ChatGPT. It was successful 61% of the time against Claude 2, which is Anthropic's chatbot. And it was successful almost 40% of the time against, I don't know if you say it, Vicuna or Vicuna, which is one of the open source chatbots. Don't you think it's Vicuna? Yeah, something like that. It's, it's named after the, uh, the llama variant. Thank you. I had not caught on to that piece of it. I, of course, here have to make a station break to say that Steve Kelly, my esteemed colleague from the government, has joined our organization to lead the AI work. So I'm just, uh, I'm, okay. the, I'm the chatbot here. <laughs> um, <laughs> the last thing I'll say on this one, I think this is the article where they basically try to throw a, throw a bone to say, oh, all of these labs are working so hard on trust and safety. And it's like, uh, as I think these four stories have shown, you have some more work to do, folks. Yeah. Or maybe, maybe not, right? Since all that work goes in and then somebody says to the chatbot, so could you jailbreak me? And, and all of that work goes out the window. You kind of wonder whether we should be putting all of our emphasis on thinking of ways to, to screw up users who do things that we think are, are bad. Because as a user, I'm constantly discovering that they won't let me do things for reasons that I suspect are sort of tertiary effects of somebody worrying, oh, well, we, you know, we could get in trouble if we allowed that to happen. Like when I talked about a uh, judge having made the rubble bounce with his endless and redundant efforts to knock down a state statute, and I tried to get a Bing cre image creator image of rubble bouncing, I said, give me a picture of an explosion that is causing uh, the rubble to bounce. And it said, oh, I'm sorry, Stuart, but I couldn't possibly show that. <laughs> so I said, the anti-nuclear war metaprompt. Exactly. Kicked in. You yes. should have asked very nicely, Stuart. I should have. Exactly. Well, what, I, what I said was, no, show me the rubble bouncing from a gas explosion. <laughs> it's, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Okay. Well, speaking of unintended consequences, let's talk about Section 702 of FISA. <laughs> oh, it's getting real in the Whole Foods parking lot here, <laughs> girls and boys. By way of background, you know, this is the part of the FISA statute, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, that was first enacted in 2008 and has been renewed twice on a five-year interval. Since then, it is up for renewal and will otherwise, if not renewed, uh, expire at the end of this year. And it has been a very chaotic environment, but things are beginning to come into a weird kind of focus. Folks who are as old as Stuart or me remember the good old days of George W. Bush and the Republicans united waving the bloody shirt saying, if you don't give us this authority, millions will die. And the sort of Democrats, uh, Pat Leahy and others, you know, in, in Congress saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, this is very intrusive and there are privacy concerns. And Everybody kind of knew where they stood. And then things got all scrambled because the Republicans became skeptical of surveillance authorities post 
uh, Donald Trump. And so it was hard to make sense of and, and disorienting for people of a certain age. Um, now we are finding a new alignment, and it is the fairly traditional and I think reasonably well understood disagreement between the intelligence committees of Congress on the one hand and the judiciary committees of Congress on the other. And we have a split with competing bills from each of those committees um, in House and Senate that sort of makes sense to, to me, at least as an observer. The intelligence committees are looking to reauthorize the bill for a fairly long period of time with some reasonable, fairly modest new limitations focused on codifying some of the improvements FBI has made in its rather poor querying practices. That's the process in which this vast storehouse of data gets queried, including with U.S. person identifiers. So you can like plug in a, a query that says, show me all the communications in the database that involves Stuart Baker or his phone number or whatever. So that's the, the intelligence committees are doing sort of limitations of that sort, mostly codifying current practice. And I should say that it would all be to and from Stuart Baker. They're, they're, they're not asking for information that inv involves Stuart Baker in which people are abusing me without actually copying me. No, and that would produce much too large a haystack <laughs> exactly. of responses to be useful, Stuart. So yes, uh, that's right. To or from Stuart's, you know, usually one of Stuart's uh, selectors, like his email or something like that. And they forbid the use of querying for like ordinary crimes to find out if the FBI wants to find out whether Bonnie and Clyde have robbed a bank or something. So, but on the, on the uh, Judiciary Committee side, particularly the House Judiciary Committee, there is a bipartisan bill that would institute some very extensive reforms, some of which I have to confess, I'm a little confused about what they mean. I'm trying to be fair and balanced in my assessment of that, but very, very extensive limitations and, and reforms, not all of which are at least clear to me at this point. So this split, you know, is at least some kind of understandable split that you can cling to in a chaotic environment. If it sounds like it's all just too much, given that there's only about, you know, three weeks left before the end of the year, fear not. The Defense Authorization Act has in it, I think in both houses of Congress, an extension of the law as is more or less, I think, without change until April of next year to allow time for more fun and games and robust and full and frank exchanges of views and legislative debates and other stuff to occur. So assuming they can't get it all squared away and figured out by end of year, then I guess there will be, you know, another few months added on so we can continue the debate through first quarter of 2024. I have heard this, I think, recently that in the House, the leadership was thinking of just putting up the House Judiciary Bill and the House Intel Bill and seeing which one gets the most support. That was in an article from The Hill, I think, that came out today. This is an actual established, but not often invoked, a mechanism for bringing bills to the floor. It's called Queen of the Hill. There used to be something called King of the Hill. It is different from this. Queen of the Hill means you, you put them both up. Everybody gets to vote for them. They can vote for both. They can vote for neither. But whoever gets the, the, the most votes is the one that gets sent to the Senate. To the Senate. Okay. That's democracy in action, brother. You know, frankly, I think in this case, because the bill that came out of the judiciary is, I think, flawed even for people who are 
kind of worried about 702. I mean, for example, it takes people who have set foot in the United States and gives them all the warrant and probable cause rights of Americans, plus some because they get it at the time they're intercepted, the time they, that the query occurs, the time when the information that is being sought was created, whatever that means. And if you're a fentanyl smuggler and you sneak across the border, you can immediately start talking back to the intelligence target that is being intercepted in Mexico. And none of your communications can be searched without probable cause and reason to believe that they'd be in the database, et cetera. So as a kind of special protection for people who are illegally entering the country, it's a peculiar even, I think, even for, for my people, it would, it would seem a little odd. So I, I'm kind of hopeful that at the end of the day, people will want to say to their constituents, yeah, I voted for Jim Jordan's bill. I also voted for the Intelligence Com Committee's bill. And that the ones who feel they have to say that will say it. And the ones that uh, that think that the, the Jordan bill is not a good bill will just not vote for it. And all we need is five of those people and the Intel bill gets referred. Maybe I'm just completely delusional, but that feels like a pretty likely outcome. Well, it's it's going to be entertaining uh, perhaps for longer than we would like. Right. Well, that's true. Before it is finally resolved. So I will only offer this observation. I was going to make a mean joke about the Judiciary Committee having achieved bipartisan unanimity on this. People used to say about Los Angeles that if you turned, tipped the country up on one corner, all the loose nuts would accumulate down in the lower left-hand corner. You know, there is a joke about the Judiciary Committee that's not completely fair. But, but thank God you haven't made that <laughs> exactly. joke, Stuart, because no one knows what you're trying to say here at this point. You've kept it very obscure. Yeah, very, you know, for me, it was, un <laughs> it was subtle. Anyway, I, uh, actually, but there's an element to this. The Judiciary Committee is pretty notoriously the worst committee on the Hill to fundraise from because they don't have a lot of big industries that are beholden to them apart from big copyright. So the people who go on those committees know that it's not a good financial deal for them. And they either don't care because they have a safe seat or don't care because the ideology is more important than the money. And either way, what you get is you get the, the two extremes. Yeah. And, you know, I do I do recall, some people may recall also, that in around the 2020 period, when certain other FISA authorities were up for renewal and, in fact, sunset. And I'm speaking here about the lone wolf provision and the roving surveillance and the expansive so-called 215, the tangible things provision of FISA. All three of those authorities sunset in 2020. But in the run-up to that, there was, as here, bipartisan agreement between Jim Jordan and Jerry Nadler, as well as, I recall, Bill Barr, so that looked like it was going to be the the reauthorization of those provisions. Then there was a weird thing where I think DOJ went to President Trump and said, you know, you have to support the House bill and you have to oppose the Senate bill, which at that time had way more restrictions on it. The Senate bill has too many restrictions, sir. So please tweet so that we galvanize support for the House bill. The Senate bill has too many restrictions. And he 
tweeted out, I believe, the Senate bill doesn't have enough restrictions. Yeah. We can't allow it. And that was when those authorities sunset. I hope we will have a, a more coherent result on this one. Uh, I think the government has lived with those sunset authorities that I mentioned from 2020. I think the government, the executive branch, really would freak out if, and, and rightly, if uh, 702 is you know, allowed to sunset. I don't think that's in the cards. I think the value proposition for 702 has been pretty widely and deeply established. It doesn't seem much in question now. It's really more a question of just all the reforms that are going to be added on to it. So anyway, uh, this will provide entertainment uh, and, in, and interesting stuff for, I think, several more months. And if you want a deeply cynical take on, on the judiciary bill, it may be they have finally figured out that they can make a lot of money from civil libertarian uh, contributions. And so they actually cut the five-year renewal period down to three on the theory <laughs> that you know, it's always it a good time soon. to do fundraising. <laughs> right. <laughs> I see. And I think the Intel, some, the Intel bills was like 12 years. So they were sort of like, can we get this over with and not have to think about it again yeah, exactly. for a long time? Exactly. Okay. Gus, the FTC is kind of astonishingly, to my mind, Still trying to stop the Activision Blizzard deal with Microsoft, even after the deal has closed, they've lost every uh, case they've brought. They're they're now up on appeal, and they're arguing that the decision to to not stop Microsoft's merger was clear error. Is that really the standard? Because uh, it sounds like they're going to have a lot of trouble. Boy, making oh that. boy, Stuart, I I don't know whether I kind of want to start by saying, call me Ishmael or singing to you uh, uh, the Gilgan's Island theme, because at, at least Ahab only had one gray whale. Lena Khan's FTC seems to have so many gray whales, and they're willing to um, get marooned in court on any three-hour tour that they can uh, find a little uh, boat to go out to sea with. Yeah, so they lost over the summer their case, their challenge to this merger. Um, and as you said, this merger has been approved in every other jurisdiction around the world. And they've now gone to uh, uh, the circuit courts to challenge their loss, and they're going to lose. There's no doubt that they're going to lose. It is a clear error standard. But what are they actually challenging? What What's at issue in this case? And this is, in many ways, the the whole game for the FTC when it comes to mergers. They're theory of the case and all mergers of Section 7 of the Clayton Act is arguably the correct textualist theory. The Clayton Act gives the uh, FTC power to block all mergers that are substantially likely to lessen competition. Over the years, that's been interpreted as substantially lessen competition. And those are two very different things. Uh, so what the FTC yeah, okay. is saying is that the standard is there needs to be some substantial likelihood, and they think that they've demonstrated that, and they haven't put that to the side, that there's some substantial likelihood that it will the merger will lessen competition in any way. And everyone else since the 1970s has said, no, this needs to be a substantial lessening of competition. It's not just some de minimis, yeah, we can come up with a theory where competition is going to be slightly decreased and that's enough to block a merger. So that that's really the, the argument that the commission is pushing here. Now, the, the biggest problem for them is this isn't even a case where there's a substantial likelihood that competition will be lessened. 
So it's a lose-lose either way. But hey, Ahab has uh, whales that got to be chased. But, you know, it's one thing to lose on the facts. It's another thing to basically have your pet legal theory harpooned like that. Because, you know, it's not like they can get it out of Fed Third. Once they lose this, they've lost the theory, haven't Uh, they? Yes, except the standard of review might save them insofar Uh, as the, the appellate court siding with the district judge. It's probably going to be a, we're not overturning the district judge, not a, we are harpooning your theory. But it makes zero sense in the world that the commission has continued to pursue this, especially given every other jurisdiction, including the European Union, has cleared this transaction. So I, you you do wonder, I mean, there must have been some litigator at the FTC who went to Lena Khan and the commissioners and said, this is not the hill we should die on because we could lose a lot, could lose things that we would like to pursue in other cases where we have better facts. And they just said, no, no, put it all on black and give it a turn. It's a really good question. I I don't understand necessarily what the strategy is here. You, You start to look at the clock. You start to realize, hey, Lena's term expires in 2025. The uh, Biden administration might be coming to an end. She's got to put some big W's on the board and not just the occasional wins here or there. But this could be a vehicle to get the case maybe to the Supreme Court to make a big impact in antitrust law. It's taken her so long to get any of her big initiatives off the ground that maybe it is put it all on black because this is the last roll of the wheel that she's got. Or the commission has several other big cases ongoing and the DOJ has Google, the FTC is, has its meta litigation and its uh, Amazon litigation. And we'll, we'll touch on some of those, I expect. But they need to start doing big things if they want to do big things. And that could lead to big decisions against them coming down the transom. Yep. Okay. So Megan, uh, HHS has some new cybersecurity ideas, I guess they are. I'm not sure they're exactly requirements yet. I kind of understand that they're trying to do carrots and sticks. They're going to pay for more security and then they're going to penalize security failures. Did you take a closer look at that and figure out whether what they're doing is on the whole a good balance set of requirements? Well, Stuart, respectfully, my vision and view of a good balance and yours are probably not uh, equal. Ah, so, Megan, respectfully, Stuart, <laughs> you, sir, are an ass. <laughs> okay, so so I, you know, I'll, I'll describe you as the, the outer bounds of reasonableness in terms of... Uh, <laughs> oh, wow, I've improved. I think I've, I think I've made it. Actually, I don't know if that's you an improvement. You got just Anyways, inside the wire. <laughs> I don't know, David. It's a dangerous place to be. Um, yeah, right. So, look, I think this the short story of this is that this is the latest interpretation or vision of the administration's national cybersecurity strategy coming to roost, so to speak. And, and again, as I said a few minutes ago, we've seen this story before, right? So repeatedly in the HHS guidance that was issued last week, there is reference to using existing authorities to advance cybersecurity. So um, what's old is new again. We've tried this in different ways before because 
no one wants enhanced regulation. And so we end up with, well, we're going to go back and look at what our existing authorities are again, and maybe we can find just a teensy bit more authority than we interpreted ourselves to have 10 years ago or five years ago. Um, I do worry though, you know, is there a possibility here that we're going to end up in the same, HHS is going to end up in the same boat as the EPA? I don't know. I'm not a, probably not because HIPAA is, is arguably puts them in a better stance for the, Plus, for those. They, they use Medicare reimbursability in a way that is designed to drive doctor's behavior. Maybe that's a bad thing sometimes. But Are you okay with that? Well, I, it, it, they, they do it. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a fact. And so I'm okay with it. Yeah. I think we need to use that. Okay. And their argument would be, look, people do die if uh, yeah. uh, systems go down. I mean, it's it's a limited number of deaths. It's in the dozens over five years, and you can only see it in the statistics, but it's there. So that allows them to say, so we're going to charge you money if you have failures, and we're going to give you money to try to avoid failures, right? To me, that seems, I wouldn't call it optimal, right? This is quite the suboptimal space to be, but I think we're, we're going in the right direction here. And I think the one challenge here, I think to your point, Stuart, of well, only a few dozen people died. Well, we know that reporting about incidents and uh, is suboptimal also. And so probably it's more than a few dozen. And I think what's what's one of the things that's most shocking about this, because you know I'm a ransomware gal, is the 278% increase in large data breaches reported to the Office of Civil Rights for Civil Rights involving ransomware in four years. Yeah. That's crazy. That is and crazy. The ransomware trend is not going in the right direction. So I am very much in favor of this. I frankly hope that they get a bigger stick. That that said, I, it seems to me that what's most important is to make sure that these hospitals have backup so that their systems can be put back online fast. And ransomware has already kind of lost that battle in a lot of companies because people do have good backup. And increasingly they say, you know, I'm not going to pay you to give me a key that might or might not work. I'm just going to go to my backup. And ransomware gangs have responded to that by saying, oh, and we're going to we're going to expose all your data. And that is the real driver. And, you know, obviously nobody wants a bunch of medical data out on the Internet either. But that seems to me a lot less dangerous than having your entire system go down for three weeks. Yes. I mean, I yeah. And we will set aside for now kind of like the drastically outdated OT systems and, and, you know, other devices that are running in some of these hospitals, mm-hmm. which might actually be the vector for some of these incidents in the first place. Anyways, that's not today's podcast. That will happen next year, maybe. Uh, uh, so again, I think we were like, we are likely to see, I think probably the case for HHS, the case for kind of review and re- assessment of authorities is stronger than it might be for other, other departments and agencies within the USG. But I would like to see more of this. I think particularly in the case of healthcare, which we know is a heavy target for ransomware, using carrots and sticks is yeah, uh, hopefully better than where we've been. And they're a target because the hospitals keep paying. And so if the hospitals yeah. could keep running without paying, I'm sure they would. So yes, it's all, it would be a good thing to- An to ounce of back. prevention. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, like I, I, it, may, it may be two pounds of prevention because actually making okay. sure that they can't compromise your system is a- very heavy lift. Yes. Whereas finding a way to do warm backups is plausible. All right. If you do get breached now, of course, you famously got to report to the SEC uh, within, uh, I think, 72 hours, 48 hours. I've forgotten now. Unless the FBI persuades the SEC that it would be bad to disclose the breach. 
And that, of course, has led people who don't want to disclose their breaches to say, how do I get the FBI to tell me that I don't need to do this? Actually, they're going to have to get the SEC to say, the FBI has persuaded us that, that you shouldn't disclose. Uh, and the FBI has come up with rules about what companies need to do to get them engaged with the SEC. David, it looked to me as though this is going to be hard for companies that want to actually get the FBI's help. Yeah. Well, I think it is fascinating and can be understood on at least two levels. Okay. So first, uh, and this is, I think, perhaps a bad sign that you are rubbing off on me, uh, Stuart. <laughs> so the, the, the first way to understand it is just a straight up good government issue, which is, as you say, sort of when and how should companies who are otherwise subject to the SEC 8K reporting requirements for fast reporting of material cyber incidents, that is, cyber incidents that an investor would want to know about, when, when and how should they be allowed to delay reporting of those incidents uh, under those SEC rules? And you can imagine situations when it might make sense not to report or to delay uh, reporting. For example, if there was some kind of nation state attack or some kind of nifty zero day exploitation, the public reporting of which would either tip off an adversary or the proponent of the attack or, you know, make a vulnerability widely known for others to exploit before patches and other defenses can be deployed. So it, it's not stupid. Uh, in fact, it's really quite reasonable, I think, to have some kind of exception or delay mechanism for certain kinds of cyber incidents that have those kinds of uh, broad national security or related concerns. And the Bureau, uh, the, the AG has the determination power under the SEC rules to grant those temporary, I think, 30-day-at-a-time delays. And the FBI has issued a highly bureaucratic policy notice. God bless them. It explains how to do it, and it tells companies how to you know, take advantage of the exception if they think they might qualify and, and therefore get the authorization to delay the public reporting. I think the second layer in here, again, is where Stuart's sort of cynicism might be running off is you, you, rubbing off on me is you kind of look at this as a little bit of an interagency thing, because the way the Bureau has has set it up is and by the way, I have a pod, I, I don't want to advertise for a competing podcast, but I think I'm doing an episode of the Lawfare podcast with the head of the FBI cyber division soon, and I intend to ask him some of the questions that have been raised to here by uh, doing this for Stuart here. But the FBI has set this up so that if you want to try to get the delay authorization, you've got to give a full accounting of the materiality of it upfront and immediately to the FBI. So what it is doing, I think, is saying that for any cyber incident, that you might want to try to get the delay on, um, and that probably will be a lot, at least at the beginning, you got to go to the FBI first. And so it has, in effect, turned the SEC reporting obligation for public companies into an obligation to report to the FBI. <laughs> at last, uh, and the, they've been dying for this. <laughs> <laughs> right? And and one can't help, at least I can't help, again, because you rubbed off on me, on, on recalling the fight over Circea, the statutory obligation to report cyber incidents to CISA at the DHS. And I mean, I remember when the Bureau got Lisa Monaco, the deputy attorney general, to say this reporting obligation, which requires reporting only to CISA and not to the FBI, will make us less safe. Yeah. And it was like, really? 
Really? So that's remarkable. So this, I think, is the, the Bureau basically saying, if you want to take advantage of this cyber delay, of the delay authorization, you got to tell us everything and upfront and early. And I think it, it, you know, and I'm not saying that's like purely cynical. It makes sense. They want to understand sure. the whole, you know, incident in question before they give them a pass on on reporting. So I'm only, I'm being slightly arch and, and maybe gratuitously nasty just to keep things entertaining. But it does... It does seem to be begging for evaluation through that cynical lens. But the gist of it is you report to the FBI, they make the assessment. If they grant you the exception, you get 30 days or maybe 60 days. And, you know, who knows how much longer you can get. And and you don't have to make the public report. But you've got to come clean to the Bureau up front. Otherwise, they will not process your request. Yeah, I agree with you on on pretty much all of that. I can't help. Oh, God. Yes, there you go. (laughs) I would point out that it's a little like saying, we're willing to consider your application for clemency after you have confessed to the crime. You have to say, yes, this is material, which means that you're going to, it's going to get disclosed. So you have to make that actually very hard decision. Often it's very hard before you can even go to the FBI. And they ask you to say, please give us the, uh, the day, hour, and minute when you decided that it was material, which is building, I think, a record for the SEC as well. Well, so that may debunk my theory. I mean, in fairness, you know, looking at it from that point of view, it may not mean that everybody's reporting everything uh, to point. the FBI. Yep. Uh, and so I, I, I can't believe it. I could be wrong on something. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's never happened before. <laughs> anyway, sorry. <laughs> Well, it, it certainly never happened that uh, something I have said has led you to say that. <laughs> yeah, really? Well, that is... <laughs> Normally, you just reinforce my pre-existing views. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> okay. Megan, the UK, the hits keep coming. The UK has set out standards for what they expect people to do before they access porn sites to verify their ages. And it looks as though you know their favorite is... Get out your photo ID, probably a driver's license or passport, and kind of hold it up to the screen so that we can see it and your face and match your live face to your photo ID. And we'll take from that the birth date. I guess they also say if you've got a credit card, you can use your credit card because only people over 18 in the UK can get credit cards. But these are actually going to be big deals for people in the UK and and maybe set some precedents. Yes. So Ofcom, uh, leveraging their authority under the Online Safety Act from 2023, issued, as you said, this guidance on Tuesday of last week. And money talks, right? Money motivates people. The failure to comply with the Online Safety Act's provisions can result in fines up to 18 million pounds, which is roughly not quite a quarter of a million dollars or 10% of global turnover. So, you know, I think the the point that some civil liberties groups are pointing out, although I think there is a legitimate concern here, right, is depending on how these companies are collecting and storing this information, those who are using their personal information, which they have to do, in order to access the site, risk having this information in yet another place where it could be breached, collected. Yeah, forget about the risk of it being hacked. The idea that yeah. some porn site is saying, just give us your credit card. We'll take care of the rest. I just don't think people are going to be really comfortable with that. And if they do get comfortable with it, they're going to get ripped off. Yeah. 
So, you know, as for precedent setting, I think probably there may be better ways to go after this. And so best of luck to those trying to enforce this. I'm glad it's not me. Yeah, yeah. I think the UK is going to, they're very serious about this and they've been pursuing it a long time. I think they're going to do it. And if they can make it work or if they can force the porn sites to uh, knuckle under, that really undermines the litigation campaign that I think Pornhub has been engaged in in the US to say, None of this works. All these state laws that require ID are unconstitutional because they won't work and they can't survive even intermediate scrutiny, yada, yada, yada. And I think being able to point to a successful implementation of this age requirement would dramatically reduce the chances of that litigation surviving in the U.S. So we'll see. Concur. Yeah. All right. Gus, I really like this story. It's it's basically uh, The Verge says the race to 5G is over. Now it's time to pay the bill because it reminds us just how problematic industrial policy can be and the many ways that government can screw up in trying to make sure that a U.S. industry wins some national security or other tech uh, race. What's the problem in uh, in the Burgess view? Yeah, so I've got mixed views about this story, Stuart. So the basic promise of 5G was it's going to be a ton of spectrum for this new super fast, low latency technology that has a particularly unique and new use case, which is machine to machine communications. We, we've Right. And we'll, you know, you'll be able to do heart surgery on yourself with your phone. Yeah. Stuff and like that. Uh, we'll, we'll have a, a, a thousand sensors per acre of cropland and all sorts of really every Amazon package will have a little tra- 5G tracker in it and stuff like that. And some of this stuff was pretty pie in the sky. Some of this stuff I think we could still see. The way that you frame it as this demonstrates a problem with industrial planning, and I'll, I'll get back to what the problem is in, in one second, I think is a really interesting framing because we very much saw over the last five years or so this big push U.S. versus China versus Europe race for 5G. There very much was a government industrial planning feel to it. It also, though, was very much driven by industry. This isn't solely a... Yes. Uh, government industrial planning thing. This is the wireless firms competing to get spectrum, spectrum allocated for their uses. And it it was also a very market-driven phenomenon. And it hasn't panned out. Almost none of these promised technologies after hundreds of billions of dollars on spectrum alone, let alone the physical infrastructure, new devices and everything, we, we really haven't seen all of these new machine-to-machine use cases coming about. And now the, the race is basically done. We have the spectrum out there. We've got the technologies deployed. Someone's got to use these networks. And more important, someone's got to pay for all the loans that were taken out and all the capital that went into building them. Interesting question in the background about how the changing interest rate environment might affect all of that. Uh, fixed rate loans taken out a few years ago might be uh, nice to be holding right now, but that, that's a separate uh, issue. Yep. Uh, so what happened? Why? Where are all the technologies? And I, I think that The Verge's basic reporting that none of these technologies developed and now we need to start actually using these networks and paying for them is completely accurate. 
to the question of where are these technologies, I, I think it's a harder question because there was kind of a pandemic that happened during this uh, yeah. period. A lot of changing geopolitical stuff has been going on, uh, some financial crises and stuff like that going on. And one of the things that we have seen is 5G is being used, at least in the United States, for a lot of fixed wireless service. T-Mobile is now offering a fixed wireless service that's been going gangbusters, adding millions of uh, new subscribers a year, and is serving for a lot of customers as a viable alternative to even more expensive fiber optic home internet. So that that was a contentious use case that's actually panning out. So it, it's a really hard question. It's basically last mile stuff. Yeah, that, yeah the, last the, mile. Yeah. Um, there, there was so much spectrum allocated that where it's a viable technology, it's a very high speed viable technology. So I sort of saw that same thing in that article. And I thought to myself, this is a little bit like the problem of electricity, where we didn't see the benefits of electrification right away because people actually had to retool all of their factories to use electric motors more effectively. It's I called by some, I think, a, a technology dissemination problem, but just having it is not the same as actually using it really efficiently. And that often takes a, a whole other, less notable revolution in the way the economy is uh, organized. So maybe we will see this. But it is certainly not what we were promised. And there was a panic in government and probably there was a panic also among the telcos. And now we are living yeah, with the hangover. What, one of the funny moments in the article, there's a quote, where do I put the SIM card in my robot that was built in 1982? And it, it actually <laughs> makes a really important point. I, I don't know that the article or the author really registers this point, but there's a depreciation cycle for capital assets. And when you're talking about uh -huh. industrial equipment, when you're talking about robots and tractors and field monitoring and all this stuff, you're not going to upgrade to these new technologies until you are retiring your previous generation of technologies. So there, there's going to be a lag time, both for the development of these new technologies and then for the phase in, uh, the phase out of the old technologies. So, yeah, we, we need to start paying for these technologies. The, the platform is now built. And as you say, now we need to start using it. Yeah. So we've still got a lot of stories to get through. I do promise listeners that we will finish this episode before December 31st. So you won't have a problem. It will still be timely. Yeah. But we probably got another 15 minutes to go. Megan, 23andMe has, has had a few pretty serious breaches and they've responded to that by saying, well, you can't bring class actions against us if we breach. I thought that was a, you know, a very lawyerly response to the breach problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, <laughs> oh, no, they say we're, we're seeking to allow customers instead to seek relief in small claims court as if. I mean, come um, on. Right. Um, and customers retain the right to opt out of mandatory arbitration by not agreeing to the new terms as if they're reading the fine print. I mean. Yeah, it feels very lawyerly. I guess I sound like I'm demeaning my <laughs> my trade, although I actually think I left the trade almost a decade ago. So <laughs> boo on you, Stuart. Uh, small claim courts are generally less formal, blah, blah, blah. You know, they, yeah, and, and less confident about, this is just, about who's right. Yeah. 
uh, I mean, this is just absurd if you ask me. But, you know, shame shame on anyone, I think. Sorry, I'm just going to be the, the mean girl who sent their data over to 23andMe in the first place. Like, you didn't see this coming. They suffered a massive data breach. Let's see, when was it? Which one? I think you have, they have That's two. That's what I thought. Lost that counting, was more than if one. If I recall. Yeah. Back in, I think it was around the spring. And as a result, changed. Um, they're facing lots of lots of lawsuits. And so now there's moving the, sh- the dispute date between from 30 to 60 days to require customers to first have to talk to 23andMe before they can litigate. So 5.5 million folks were impacted. No, a total of 6.9 million people were impacted by the breach. 5.5 through DNA relative features and 1.4 through their family tree feature. So Again, if you can't protect it, don't collect it. Same thing. If you can't protect it, don't connect it. Like, yeah. Why are we still having this conversation in 2023? No pun on 23 and me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so I, 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 can I just say please. I really like the mean girl, Megan. Yeah, she is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you. I'm with you. Even even when I'm on the receiving end. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, you know, unfortunate, unfortunate tactics. I think this doesn't do any good for both lawyers, but they're already usually at the bad end of the jokes and, and the blunt end of the stick. But also, you know, 23andMe not winning any friends with this with this move, yeah. if anyone actually reads the fine print. Yeah. Well, oh, no, they're, they're, they're getting a certain amount of time in the barrel over this, for sure. Remarkably, I haven't seen the FTC say, hey, what are you doing? Usually, they, they'll they ride to the rescue at the drop of a headline. Well, the, the FTC um, is too but, busy doing other stuff, Stuart. Well, I was going to say, yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, Exactly. Picking (laughs) on Gus's soapbox. (laughs) All right. So when the administration started, you would have had to flip a coin to say, who's going to have the more aggressive regulatory agenda, the FTC or the FCC? And it's clear the FTC has been doing nothing but aggressive regulatory uh, proposals for a couple of years. And the FCC has been quiet not because they didn't want to, but because they didn't have the votes to do stuff. And now suddenly they do. They've got a full majority for uh, the chairman uh, and they're starting to be given a lot of leeway. And I, what I thought we ought to talk about, because I know Gus has been quoted on this, at least I think you have, Brendan Carr has written a scathing dissent from the latest FCC proposal saying this is going to be a kind of Stalinist disaster for the communication sector. Uh, What's going on here? Oh, boy, Stuart. So first, can we just pause to have a moment of silence and thanks for the first two years of the FCC under the Biden administration when they were deadlocked too, too? They were a productive agency. They were getting stuff done. They weren't controversial. It was great. And then they got a fifth commissioner appointed. They have the 3-2 Democratic majority. And now they're doing net neutrality again. Comments are due on the 14th. And they are doing this and that. And oh, my goodness. And one of the things that they're doing is these digital discrimination rules. And I actually feel bad for the agency here because this is all going to be struck down in court. But Congress, um, with the Infrastructure Act, they have this one very brief section, uh, section 1754 was codified at in Title 47, and it is pure aphorism. It's got a bunch of statements of policy, then the more statements of policy, and the only operative language there, I've pulled it up here, 
not later than two years after November 15, 2021, so that's where we are now, the Commission shall adopt rules to facilitate equal access to broadband internet access service, taking into account technical and economic feasibility, and prevent rules that prevent digital discrimination of access based on income level, race, ethnicity, color, religion, or national origin. So basically, FCC, we, Congress, are telling you to adopt rules that solve discrimination. And right. first off, there's no... Based on how much money you make, which, you know, is kind of inconsistent with, uh, you know, the basic capitalist yeah, system. Now, this is part of the Infrastructure Act, which includes the BEAD program. It's almost certain that what Congress was really saying was, hey, FCC, make sure that the $42 billion in the BEAD program aren't wasted and abused. Help us police that. But it's written so broadly and the commission has interpreted it as hey, we need to stop discrimination online with ISPs and make sure that everyone in the country has unfettered access on equal terms, equal cost to internet services. And they've proposed these rules and Commissioner Carr uh, appropriately excoriates them that it goes so much further than Title II regulation of the telecom telephone network ever went. They're basically saying, we can regulate every aspect of your business, and any customer who feels that they've been discriminated against can file a complaint to us saying, I've been discriminated against, and we will investigate it and issue fines with no limit in response to that complaint, with no standard other than, did you discriminate against them in our, the commission's judgment? And this isn't how law works. This is hard to imagine that the uh, Supreme Court is going to, if this makes it to that point, hold this up. This could be a non-delegation doctrine case, the way that it's been interpreted. This is uh, mountains and molehills, major questions case. I hate to just immediately go there with this sort of stuff. But the commission, this is fever dream stuff. So the president has some responsibility here. Didn't he direct them to do some of this stuff? Or was his direction open to the more limited oh, interpretation. Stuart, let me tell you about independent agencies and removal provisions. Uh, <laughs> so yes, the, the president did, after uh, the fifth commissioner was appointed, issue a, a statement saying, I'm calling on the FCC to implement this statute and to uh, go hog wild with it. Let's go crazy. That doesn't mean that the commission is supposed to go hog wild and crazy. In fact, uh, the president got the, all the political points that he needed. He told him to do this, and that that's the check that he needs to write for his uh, political campaign. Uh, um, right. And look, the, the reality is this is going to run into a judicial shredder, um, and it's going to be a couple years of litigation and uncertainty and confusion for the industry. It's going to new, do no one any good, and that is Federal Communications Law and Policy 101 for you. So in the second Trump administration, could the FCC say, we really think the best way to facilitate equal access to broadband internet access service is to make sure that discrimination against conservatives is extirpated from the internet? Now, Stuart, let me tell you something about uh, First Amendment 101. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Uh, that still apply? That's right. All right. It's quite possible that the the administration or the lawyers who are now in the administration will regret 
having developed an enthusiasm for reading this as broadly as they did. Because, uh, you know, if, if you were taking money today, you'd probably take the bet that says Trump is elected to a second term. Uh, scary as many people find that. And so uh, you certainly shouldn't be interpreting these laws in ways that you don't want to see them interpreted in a Trump administration. All right. Here's one, Megan, I don't understand. I, 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 Ron Wyden, well, they, they, I guess I, I, those two thoughts go together. Enough said, right? <laughs> Ron Wyden has written a letter saying, I'm really upset about something about government access to smartphone notifications. And it seems like he's not entirely upset about government access to notifications, but about the way in which it's done, the secrecy with which it's done. And I'm not even sure how much information you get from having access to notifications. So what's going on there? Well, since David already laughed, I feel like he's in a better position to answer this one than I am. But something about, uh, well, in, I'm going to set aside who's the point of contact at the end of this letter, but we all kind of know what's going on here. Wyden's office has been tipped off that, I guess, initially it was foreign governments who were using this tactic, but then it was used to identify suspects, if you will, persons of interest related to the January 6th attack on the Capitol via the use of, as far as we can tell, push notifications from Apple and Google that the government is purportedly compelling the providers to use in order to associate, I think they say, email addresses and I think usernames to identify. Oh, okay. Folks. And so apparently the ECS in this case is under a gag order, right, to not disclose to the user that they've been the subject of this particular activity. Anyways, so it, it is a little bit difficult to tell from what's been, yeah, I appreciate Wyden being careful about the way he's he's written this, being one who supports the government investigating and fulfilling its responsibilities around public safety, uh, but it's a little hard to tell what is that issue here unless David is, David is always better at reading the tea leaves on these things than I am, but perhaps he wants to chime in here and scare gander, I guess. I have only studied it very casually, and it just seems as if he wants the government to disclose that it is, in fact, doing this, collecting push notifications, which I guess it hasn't been widely understood that they do that. And, and maybe they do it for account association or linking of accounts and identifications, or maybe just for other reasons. I, I had thought the gist of it was just that he wanted the government to sort of admit that this was a form of electronic communication that they can intercept. It, it may be there's something else going on. I don't I actually don't know and haven't tried to get to the bottom of it. But, you know, it's worth watching because Wyden is an interesting guy. He has smart staff and people, you know, I'm not saying he's right, but he just he, he's on top of things. So it's it's worth paying attention to what he's doing. Yeah, I think one of the things that's driving this is it turns out that all of these push notifications from all of your apps goes through Apple or Google. And so there is now one choke point that the government can go to, probably with a subpoena, without any elaborate additional process, because nobody saw this coming, and collect the push notifications, which might say you have a message from you know this person, which tells the government that you're in touch with that person and that uh, you have that service on your phone. So you can see there's some in, some information the government could get. And certainly uh, great to see uh, Ron Wyden allying himself with the January 6th defendants. Uh, uh, <laughs> Stuart. <laughs> 
Because, yeah, if there's a problem here, they'll all have ways of objecting to their trials and to the evidence adduced against them. So it could get interesting. Okay, so to be watched, it sounds like. Gus, you promised to talk about this. Now we are going to let you talk about it. This is something we actually have talked about before, so we don't have to dive deep into it. But the FTC's having driven Meta into a corner where Meta is now unleashing nuclear weapons against the FTC's organization. They're not the only ones. There's litigation against the SEC making some of the same arguments. But what is the argument and how realistic is it to expect that the Supreme Court is going yeah, to buy it? So Meta has filed a complaint challenging the constitutionality of the FTC on a range of uh, dimensions. Actually, they cite two violations of Articles 1, 2, and 3 of the Constitution, as well as... <laughs> They, they couldn't wait. They couldn't work, work in the Ninth Amendment. <laughs> they've got some uh, due process stuff and they've got Seventh Amendment stuff in there. And the Seventh Amendment stuff is actually the easiest because the Supreme Court just heard arguments in a case involving the SEC, as you mentioned, involving Seventh Amendment claims, and they seemed pretty well disposed to embrace them. And look, the reality, there are so many realities here. First, Stuart, I'm going to contest your suggestion that Meta is backed into a corner by the FTC here. They're just damn annoyed by the FTC. The FTC is bringing a lot of stupid <laughs> cases. As I say, say, I was in my bedroom and a mosquito backed me into yeah, a corner. <laughs> the, uh, the, the reality of the administrative state is there's a lot of ambiguity and uncertainty and a lot of federal law and a lot of administrative structures are possibly on any given Friday unconstitutional. And the reality is yeah. so long as the people running these agencies are doing so responsibly in a way that makes sense to industry, it's a partnership. It's a dance. We get it. We need to have a cop on the beat. And so long as you're interpreting the law in a way that's pretty reasonable, judges are going to let you get away with it. And we in industry aren't going to challenge you with it. But when you step out of line and start abusing your power and doing crazy stuff and trying to overplay your hand, then courts are going to start slapping you down and industry is going to start taking you to court over your bad decision making. And that's what's happening here. Um, the FTC has been reckless with its power and not just the FTC, the SEC, lots of agencies over the last 20 years or so. This is why we've been seeing the Supreme Court recalibrating administrative law over the last generation. And this is why the doors now open for Meta to bring challenges like this. And some of them are very likely going to succeed and it's going to devastate the FTC and other federal agencies' authority for the next generation. And it's because we've got idiot bureaucrats who think that they've got a blank check of authority to put, again, their, their fevered dreams of regulation into play. And that this isn't how government works. Yeah, I do think some of the constitutional and other objections here have been around a long time, but the authority of these agencies was sustained by a kind of gauzy, progressive hangover from the New Deal. Well, you know, government must do stuff. And what they're doing is by and large in the public interest and they're experts and they know what they're doing. And all of that has been kind of eroded over the last 50 years, I think. And now people coming back and saying, no, no, we want to bring it all back with a vengeance. 
and they are running into people who never mm-hmm. believed yep. any of it. That's exactly right. All right. I'm, I'm nice and cantankerous about this today, Stuart. I, I, I like it. <laughs> yeah, no. no. I, I, okay. They are going to have a problem, especially with this Supreme Court. And a lot of people are going to say, well, you kind of asked for it. Speaking of asking for it, actually, yes, uh, Vladimir Duneyev, who designed mm-hmm. TrickBot and then thought he could go to South Korea for a trip, got busted there and extradited to the U.S. He's pleading guilty. Uh, David, how come we're suddenly arresting developers and and catching them outside of Russia? The long arm of the law, Stuart. You know, you, you think you're... You're free and you're far away, but uh, they put out red notices and they, you're on various lists. And then very slowly, but sometimes, you know, pretty inexorably, the wheels of justice turn. So for Vladimir here, uh, he was extradited from South Korea in 2021, and he did plead guilty just a few days ago to his role in the TrickBot malware exploitation scheme, which... For those who don't remember or don't try to keep track of every single thing in the area was a sort of big collection of malware tools that would steal money and, you know, allow ransomware attacks to occur. And it was used, I think, to pretty good effect. I mean, bad effect in hospitals and schools and other businesses all over. They actually got someone to plead guilty, uh, I think a Latvian woman in June, and now they've gotten Vladimir Duneyev to plead guilty as well. He'll get, a, I think, a pretty substantial sentence sometime in the spring. The statutory max is way up there, of course, given the- 35 years, uh, I think I saw, yeah. Right, he'll guideline out much lower, but it's still, you know, that they got him at all. It is a kind of a thing where, you know, you, you, you just, it's really frustrating that we can't get our hands on these bad guys, you know, instantaneously. But it, it also is worth remembering that the wheels turn sometimes slowly, but they keep turning and grinding. And there's a certain just, you know, they will not forget about you if you do a bad thing like this. And yeah, so sometimes, you know, the, the wheel turns, but it, it comes around and gets you. I think it was TrickBot that when Russian and Ukrainian ransomware gangs broke up over the war, there was a big leak of data. And I wondered if Dunayev got caught up in that, and that's how we identify. Because usually you can't tell who the developers are. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I suspect that this may or may not be really great patient uh, law enforcement work. Yeah, well, it is, it is patient law enforcement work. I don't know whether it tells us that there's a model now that we can hope will catch more developers. No, I, I mean, I don't. I, I don't think this signals some revolutionary change in things. It's more just the patient grinding. Yeah. Um, and they did, as I said, get somebody to plead guilty in June of this year. That may have been a source of uh, information yeah, or they may have had their information from elsewhere. You know, they've got these guys, they're doing all the things. They've got them under OFAC sanctions and various other mechanisms and they're trying to put pressure. But no, I, I don't see this as a as a massive change in things. It's just a reminder that <laughs> you don't want to be on the red notice list or or on the uh, the seven hundred two target list. <laughs> or <laughs> that is true. That is true. At least I think so. Uh, we'll see what happens uh, in December. So you know, later this month. Gus, Twitch shut down in Korea, and Twitch is you know. Twitch in Korea should be like uh, chocolate and peanut butter. But they said, we can't make money in Korea because South Korea, obviously, uh, because of all the network fees. 
which I guess is a way of saying that South Korea's regulatory regime for ISPs is great for ISPs, but maybe not for the people who are traveling over the ISPs wires. Yeah. So uh, breaking news, Econ 101 is true. You raise the price, you get less of stuff. And we've seen this over and over again, and regulators and advocates keep trying these stupid ideas again and again. We see, well, let's make social media sites pay news publishers for the content. Okay, Australia, Facebook is no longer going to offer service in Australia or is going to start only charging users no more free lunch because they need to pay for content. Europe keeps talking about well, you know, maybe we should start charging edge providers for uh, a tax in order to subsidize broadband build out or just tax them because they've got all this money. If you make it more expensive to offer your services, you're going to get less of those services. And this is uh, not complex stuff to anyone except for regulators who think that money doesn't exist. Yeah, it is interesting that there's this zero-sum game here between the uh, the people who provide the content and the people who provide the wires. And increasingly, we're seeing these really ugly lobbying battles over who gets to take the pie. And in the U.S., the people who are most likely to take the pie are the content providers, and the telcos are on their back foot. But in South Korea, quite the reverse. Yeah, and the policy question that we should be focused on isn't, who gets what slice of the pie, it's how do we make the pie the largest? And the right. telcos and the edge providers, the content providers, they don't care about the size of the pie, they care about the size of their slice. Yeah. Okay, let's do a bunch of quick hits and wrap up. Megan, Bizlotto, what happened? So they purportedly processed more than $700 million in illicit funds. I will also note back to my ransomware person, including proceeds from ransomware. And so the founder and majority owner that served as the primary conduit for all of these nasty things pleaded guilty. Uh, he is a Russian national. He, among other names, goes by, and not Nix goes by uh, Gandalf. Lovely. Yeah. He was in Shenzhen, China. And among the things that he agreed to was to release any claim that he had over $23 million in seized assets. I think the X version of this or the 230 character is NSET, the National Cryptocurrency Enforcement Team, is beginning to or continuing to have some impact on DOJ's ability to claw back slash identify the proceeds of crime that are transmitted through virtual currencies. And here, I think you're seeing also the government, the United States government, making good on its promise to bring enforcement authority against those who are failing to follow the rules. The rule here being the need to use KYC, you know, your customer procedures, if you're processing virtual, excuse me, virtual assets. So as a person who thinks that the government needs to be doing more uh, to combat ransomware, including the ability to extract proceeds from using ransomware as a tactic to funnel, you know, and fund your God only knows what activities, this is a good one. The sad part about this is, of course, that he only faces five years in prison. But I will also note that among the other interesting developments here, this was not SDNY, but this was actually EDNY together with CSIPS on this case. So I think the investigation certainly is ongoing. And also of note in this case is France is also identified in the press release from DOJ. So several notable developments as we continue to watch with great at least for me, great interest in how the government is managing to investigate the abuse of, of virtual assets. Okay. And Alf V, ransomware site, 
is having trouble staying online. Is that still true? And is it possible that law enforcement has gotten inside their network and is wrecking havoc? Reports are, yes, that there is an outage in in Alphabet's uh, sites that have been going on. I didn't get a chance to check this morning before we came on, but the outage happened on the 8th and then continued to get on the 9th, which would have been what, that was Saturday, I guess. Alpha V obviously is also closely connected with Black Hat. And so, you know, oh, gee, so sad that perhaps this site has been taken down. Oh, well, I'll, that would be, I'll that, stop that would be nice. <laughs> Gus, yeah. IBM has announced quantum computing research milestones, which at first I thought they were announcing that they had achieved the milestones, but now I think they just announced that they have a 10-year plan and what the milestones on that 10-year plan are. Yeah, there there are some milestones or actual developments here, but breaking quantum computing is coming. It's just... The, <laughs> okay. Well, actually, this is the same thing as 5G. This is, we built a platform. And actually, what IBM has done, they've done some real stuff here. They've released an API. They've released developer tools. They've release test beds. They, I, I love a statement from a recent podcast saying, no, there aren't any applications yet. One of their project leads here literally says, no, you can't do anything with this stuff yet. But we have a platform that researchers can use to start playing around and trying to figure out. We're at the point where we can start developing applications to scientific and technical problems, So, it, which is great. Well, but the, the yeah, news uh, is no news yet. That's what I thought. And God bless them for continuing to push that forward while everybody else is trying to date the blonde in the AI industry. Uh, they may yet produce something that, that works better than AI, and they certainly are showing some patience and long-term planning. So let's hope that it works out. Oh, and what about, <laughs> speaking of the blonde in the AI industry, uh, the UK has decided that maybe OpenAI and Microsoft shouldn't be tied together. And this has got to be the earliest antitrust action against a new technology that we've ever seen. Is it as big a deal as the UK announcement suggests? UK, Ghana, UK. <laughs> yeah, and it, okay. It's, it's stupid scrutiny that can be applied to any number of other deals. And Google DeepMind, where were they then? Oh, wait, Google, that's actually produced some really useful results. Huh, maybe that was a good acquisition. They're just yeah. trying to destroy AI. Theory Brennan... Gotta love the guy. He has a great Twitter personality and is doing everything he can to ensure Europe stays in the Stone Age. That's for sure. I thought the UK was trying to say, hey, we are punching above our weight on AI regulation, but we'll see. Maybe there's going to be nothing here when all is said and done, as was the case with a lot of the regulatory proposals for AI. It's not fair to me to lump in the UK with the whole EU uh, AI Act uh, fiasco. That, right. That's its own uh, thing. Apo- Let me do that. Apologies <laughs> to uh, a- anyone from the UK. You are, in fact, better than that. All right. Well, and speaking of that and closing our episode for the year, Europe has announced that they actually have a deal on the AI Act. It looked as though it was going to collapse completely as recently as the weekend, but they have come away saying, trust us, we have a deal. And they've kind of not explained exactly how they worked out their differences. And it'll be a little while before we can figure out what the rather anodyne announcements from Brussels mean. I'm willing to bet this is just a kind of a cobbled together patch on a bunch of different agendas and no one will really know what is intended 
for another year or two. But really what is intended is the bragging rights of saying, we have an AI act and then and then you don't. And if that keeps the Europeans happy and prevents them from doing even dumber stuff to uh, the tech industry, okay, fine, let them brag about it. I just don't think they know what the AI Act means or why they've adopted it. And that is to the relief of our audience. But look, you're not going to get one next week. So you could listen to this in pieces. Megan, Gus, David, thank you for joining us. Remember, listeners, I am still trying to figure out what the future is after episode 500. I am attracted to the idea of the risky business model where at the end of the regular show, they bring on somebody who paid to talk for 10 minutes and maybe get interviewed or to introduce a topic they don't think is often covered. I'm kind of of the view that we could probably make that interesting for people and people who weren't interested in it could just stop listening. And so it would be a win-win if people actually wanted to pay for it. So if you work at a company and you think, God, if, if only they covered my issues more, here's a chance to pay to have your issues covered more. I can't promise you it'll come out the way you like, but I can uh, promise you that we will devote at least the last part of the uh, program to letting other people who paid to be there talk about what they want to talk about. So that's, that's an idea. But only if somebody comes and says, yes, we'd like to support that. And we've got a whole bunch of ideas for entertaining discussions of policy that you otherwise wouldn't get to. So give me a call. Send me a note, cyberlawpodcast at gmail.com. Otherwise, have a great holiday. I will be taking at least one grandson to Utah skiing and then off to Vermont to see all the other grandsons and go skiing with them. So it should be a great couple of weeks. I'm going to miss you, but not that much. And in the meantime, leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you for listening. This has been episode 485 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. Respectfully, Stuart, <laughs> you, sir, are an ass. <laughs> <laughs>